You're tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It was a novel idea. Try to get more people to consider taking the city bus by making it free for a whole week. So how do we do? Well, the numbers are in, and the city says it was better than expected. We talked to Deputy Transportation Director John Nauchi yesterday afternoon about whether the free ride will translate to a boost in long-term ridership and looking ahead to integration with the train, which moved into a key testing phase this week. Here's John. We've got some preliminary data from last week, and the results look amazing. Well, what were we hitting? Because I know, you know, with COVID, our ridership dropped. So when you look at our ridership in, like, in the last year, trailing up to this, if we, if we just rewind back to July, so summertime, but, you know, our ridership was at about about 107,000. So fast forward to the beginning of August, our ridership kind of ramped up a little bit, you know, because there's more activities going on as the schools start to come back. Our ridership went from about 107,000 in July to about 115,000 in August. The data from the week of free transit, though, showed a huge jump to 132,000. So that really surpassed our expectations. How about the express routes? How did those new changes work? The express routes also showed increases in ridership. But, you know, I mean, we we really saw the most impact in the routes that served UH. Those routes were pretty much saw the, the greatest increases. We were very pleased with the results. Basically, if you compared the free week to the week before, we gained about 12% uptick in ridership. But if you compare the free week to a year ago, we were up 25% from that very same week last year. One of the other metrics that we're also very proud of is one of our goals was to get a holo card in everyone's wallet or purse, as many people as, as we could, because the holo card was also free during that a two-week period, including the free week. And basically, in the month of August, we issued a little bit north of 36,000 new holo cards. Generally, in all the months we've had coming up to that August, we've only issued about 14,000 per month. So that was huge that in the last month of August, we issued 36,000 holo cards. And if you look at new holo cards that were used during that month of August, we basically welcomed almost 19,000 new holo cards during that month of August. So a lot of new users got on board the system and took advantage of the free week. And so therefore, we saw about a 20% increase in the number of unique holo users during that month of August. So our experiment was a success. It really was. And, you know, we had kind of structured the program around what our city ordinances allow. And we had an upper limit as to how much revenue loss we could predict. So we kind of thought a really baseline average revenue loss, if we excuse people from having to pay fares for that week, was going to be about $182,000. That's what we provided to the city council and asking them to approve a resolution to approve the fare-free week was we thought, you know, we would lose about 180000 but actually, our cash revenue only declined by about 46000 for that week. So it was a lot less than we expected. So, I mean, you know, I, I think it was a success in that we 
maybe lost out on a little bit less than $50,000, but we got a lot of new riders to try the bus. I know you're just getting the the numbers in for this week, but it doesn't seem to be holding, you know, at least in the areas where we want it to work, like you said, around university, you know, by the private schools, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, we are definitely geeks looking at numbers right now, and um, we, we're we very excited to keep um, digesting this data. So we have a constant stream of data coming in, both from the HOLO system and from our onboard. We have uh, automatic passenger counters on board each bus. So we've been kind of keeping close tabs on those numbers. And, you know, we, we recognize that the week that UH starts is generally the two to three week period a month following that will be when people settle into their patterns and and things like that. And so to that end, we want to trace this and to see if the ridership holds up. Any tweaking, though, needs to be done to any of those uh, routes? Well, we always tweak routes as, as we go. And I think what we're finding is the thing we'll be working on is making sure that our schedules have more realistic travel times based on what the buses are actually doing out there. And then how are we sitting for drivers? You know, do we have enough buses on the road? Uh, Do we have enough drivers behind the wheel? I think right now, I mean, we can always use more drivers, understanding that we're in a constant um, retirement and attrition on the bus side. But I think we have a sufficient workforce out on the road right now. Um, One of the unintended things that happened last week was that, you know, since our bus was also was free, our handy van was also free and we saw a huge uptick in in demand for handy van. And so we were running a little bit low on in terms of vehicles and drivers for the handy van. But that bump was due to the allure of fare free. Okay, so so maybe folks who hadn't taken advantage of the handy van were just trying it out. I think you know the handy van. You have to be pre-qualified in order to use it. I think the people that were qualified to use handy van really took advantage of like the the free program and went out and maybe crammed a lot of errands into into that one week, which I think is is natural. Everybody would would tend to do that. Anything else that maybe surprised you? Uh, because really, this is the first time that we've had free fares, right? Yeah, this is the first time that we've accommodated and and actually implemented free fares in order to attract people to the bus. You know, what was most surprising is I think, I'm I'm glad all the messaging got out. One of the numbers I really looked at was of the new 36,000 holo cards issued in the month of August, about 18,000 of them, so roughly half of them were, were used. So a lot of people got cards but did not use them. And I'm I'm absolutely happy about that. You know, it, it kind of furthers our goals that we want everybody to have a holo card, so that when we have those cards available for use in things like parking, that you know people will have that ready to go. You know, just to have that money always ready, right? So I mean, I think even if people put on, you know, throw five bucks on the card and have it auto load for you, you know, if you ever need to use it, it's always there for you, and your balance will be protected. And whenever we get the rail system running, you know, then we'll have that to use there uh, as well. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of that, we had a a very important, huge milestone that maybe, um, I I don't know that the average person on the street knows how significant this is, but we entered trial running starting this Monday. And what that is, is it's a series of very intensive tests of the system, which actually mobilize all the rail workforce to actually reenact scenarios that happen during operations and actually test 
the, the rail vehicles themselves on a regular schedule. So we have five trains that are running a pretty intense schedule right now. If you go out between Kapolei and Aloha Stadium, you'll actually see the trains running in both directions. You'll see a, about a train every five minutes. And so that's a huge milestone in that it is the first milestone to be met before the system gets turned over to DTS for operations. So it is an intense period, and we assume things will go wrong during that, but um, it is the first chance for the system to really kind of flex its, its flex its arms and to really get rolling on, a, on an intensive basis. Have you had any opportunity to be out there this week as they've been making those runs? Yes. So actually, I went out this morning to go watch. And, you know, before it used to be that you'd see a train run occasionally, and everybody would point and everybody would kind of smile at it. But this is this is what it's going to look like when we open up. The, the frequency of trains is much greater than when we were testing previously. And people will really get an idea of what the trains will look like while we're running regularly. So, I mean, in my head, you know, there's a lot of commuters who are on the H1 freeway near H2 or near the Sears Distribution Center. And you know, up on the, in the horizon, they'll see multiple trains pass as they wait in the early morning congestion. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, uh, we want those uh, trains to uh, be carrying passengers yeah. soon. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I think that will help change people's confidence in maybe comparing where the project has been as to where it is going. Well, yeah, we just don't want any delays. So hopefully uh, the, the testing uh, works okay and we don't have to delay the the start and the transfer uh you know b- between heart and dts and we can get this system up and running we've certainly paid a lot of money for it yes and you know to, to that end too i mean while i'd like to see the, the testing period and, and all the trained workforce i'd like to see them sail through without any any glitches really right now is the time for glitches because it gives the, the teams all chances to respond and this is where we really learn the most about the system without actually having passengers on board. So I think that this is a very exciting time for the workforce to finally simulate what it's like to be running. Okay, but without passengers on board, they're not inserting their holo cards in the uh, in, in the fare box uh, system, so we can't really test those. Um, no, those were those are being tested also. Ah, okay. Yeah. All right. So yeah. even even without passengers, you've got your staff. Uh, yes. running through and then that. even even the loads and the weights on the train are being tested to that to that extent. So mm-hmm. this is as close as we can test without having actual passengers on board. Okay. All right. So keeping our fingers crossed that uh, that it goes well and uh, and we get to use the train sooner than later. Yeah. And then someday we can see it all integrated. Jump on the bus, jump on the train. All right. Well, thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. And then we'll look forward to some updates uh, in the the weeks and months to come. Yeah, thank you. That was John Nouchi, Deputy Director of the city's Department of Transportation Services. He was talking to us about uh, uh, last week's free ride campaign on the city bus and the handyvan and the new testing phase of our rail system. You 
know, throughout this week, we've been hearing about polio in the islands. Our immunization rate against the disease six, uh, sits at 88%, putting us in fourth from the bottom compared to states across the country. Ronald Balahadia is the immunization program manager for the state health department. He talked to us this morning about the growing concern officials have to get those rates up again so our keiki are protected from a disease that has no cure and can leave people with permanent paralysis. Definitely a lot of concerns. The last report of a polio case here in Hawaii was in 1978. So it's been a long time since we've last had an actual polio case here in the islands. And part of the reason how that occurred is because of the increased vaccinations that were available to us and continues to be available to us in the islands. And one of the most important things is that our schools for entry into schools are requiring polio, MMR, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, hepatitis B, etc. And so that really allows for a level playing field for all of our KK and our people here in Hawaii to ensure that they are protected against vaccine preventable disease. In, and especially in this polio situation or case that has occurred in New York. So it is something of a, a concern for us. But Hawaii has, for the most part, been really good at vaccinating not only our kids at two years of age, but also when they have to enter into school. So we're normally in our 90s, low to middle 90% coverage rate for the state. But what we have seen, especially with COVID pandemic, is a drop in our coverage rate and we're now in the high 80s and the concern really is is that we want to make sure to try to increase that back up again and get it up to the 90s where we want to try to really ensure that our population is protected against this particular disease. Interesting of note is that we know smallpox has been eradicated and Polio is next on the list of a vaccine-preventable disease that hopefully will be eradicated, but there's a lot of effort and work to try to get to that point in time. When I checked this morning, our rate was like 88%. I think nationally, you know, it's in the 90s. And I don't know what you can share with us just about the breakdown, if you've got the breakdown, you know, of how many kindergartners, you know, school-aged children, you know, does that cover? Do we have those numbers? We have an assessment that we normally do on a cluster and a sample of our kindergartners, and we're looking at around 88% for the school year 2020-2021. And as we are in this new school year of 2022-2023, we're going to be evaluating the children that come in and look at their vaccination. So we'll have updated information. But I think the drop has definitely occurred. And I think we're not the only ones here in Hawaii, but the rest of the nation with COVID happening and our parents being concerned about bringing their children to potentially be exposed to COVID if they do go into clinics to get their children up to date. And then also some of the clinics having closed because of the lack of staffing personnel and and being able to provide the service to our population. So there are other reasons why that drop has occurred. And I also think that there could be definitely misinformation about vaccines in general that have caused parents to be hesitant in wanting to get their children vaccinated. So all of that, sadly, within the pandemic has caused a drop, but we really want to try to refocus and get 
especially with this case in New York, to refocus back and increase our coverage and really have our cakey, more importantly, vaccinated and anybody that has not been vaccinated to try to provide them the information necessary to, so that they do get vaccinated. Well, I think in New York, in some of those communities where they did have the case of a man who was paralyzed, I think the rates were like in the 60s. Uh, you know, very low for the children. Mm -hmm. And there's a a big push now, um, not just in New York, but also in London to vaccinate children below the age of 10, you know, I think Mm -hmm. one to 10, just because, uh, you know, there's no cure for polio and all the efforts are in prevention. Yes. And I don't know if, I mean, I think you you can recall some of the pictures when polio was Googled as the iron lung machines, right, that caused paralysis and needing the ability to be able to breathe. So those pictures are really horrific in a lot of ways, and it is preventable. And so that's really, and as you mentioned, in some of these communities where the, the actual case occurred, really low rates of vaccinations, and I believe the individual himself was not vaccinated. And so without having the vaccine, you're then allowing the virus to come in and then potentially cause what we're now seeing as paralytic uh, polio. But also polio, there's instances where polio is non-paralytic, and that also could spread to other individuals in the community that are not protected. So it's really important, and I think our schools have done an incredible job, especially with the requirements that we have, to ensure that our keiki are given the vaccines where they need to be. And again, that's where we need to try to work with our pediatrician our doctors to identify individuals that have not been vaccinated to try to answer their questions and hopefully increase our coverage rate here in Hawaii. But the idea with these mandatory vaccinations is the children are supposed to have that before they actually walk into the classroom. Before entry, we normally require the individuals to come in, but there are instances where appointments, especially for doctors, there are pediatricians, are booked you know, two, three months in advance, and either a parent just recently moved and is not able to update their child's vaccinations. So they're allowed to be able to come into school, but with appointments in place. And so our school health aides and health assistants are monitoring the children's vaccination information and then will ping or remind parents that they have not submitted their child's vaccinations. And if they don't, after several attempts, then the child is excluded from school. So there are definite mechanisms in place to ensure that vaccines are provided in the school setting. And what if you don't know if you've been fully vaccinated? I know there's an immunization registry, but my understanding is that you know not all the states have this online service where you can just go and type in your name and you know get a snapshot. We don't have that here, right? Well, we have the immunization registry here in Hawaii, but it only started, you know, not too long ago. And so a lot of the data or information of vaccine records, I recall my mom and I actually have mine, my yellow card mm-hmm. <laughs> that most people yes, have, I have one of those. their vaccinations, right? And sadly, sometimes those get lost or destroyed. And a lot of the old data were all written down. And so oftentimes we try to go back to the pediatrician or the physician that attended 
send it to the child as the first course of action to try to identify if the child has been vaccinated. The other thing that could be done are testing or doing antibody testing to see if there are individuals. But if there is no documentation and there's no detection, then the only other option is to get revaccinated again to show that the individual has the protection needed. When did the registry get started? I believe in 2009, I believe. Okay. Um, it, it predated before I started with the immunization program here in Hawaii. So I think around 2008, 2009, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, but uh, if you're in that system, you be, you should yeah. be able to type in your name and you should see whether you're fully vaccinated or not? We do not currently have a feature for individuals to go into the system to access it. What they would need to do is contact the immunization program here, the Hawaii Department of Health. And then we will then be able to do the search for them. And then whatever information is acquired, we will then share that with the individual requesting for that. We've been hearing from Ron Malahadia, Immunization Program Manager for the State Health Department. He was talking with us about how Hawaii's vaccination rates for polio have dropped down from the 90s to the 80s. We are now below the national average and fourth from the bottom compared to states across the country. He urges families to get up to date with their polio shots. We will have links to the website and the phone number to check uh, with on the conversation page of our website later today. And while many states do have um, an online registry system to access, Hawaii does not offer that. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from BIA Hawaii with residential construction safety training classes on Oahu, September 7th. Open to the public. Registration at BIAHawaii.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Justin Zorn. And I'm Lee Mars. We're co-authors of Golden. Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about the power of silence in a world of noise. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. For today's Reality Check, Honolulu will beat reporter Marina Riker has a story today about the fallout over recent power problems on Maui. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, and your story is about a lot of dead fish. Yes, it's really sad. Um, I uh, spoke with a farmer here on Maui. Um, His name is John Dobovan. He runs Kula Haven Farm uh, Farm here on Maui. Um, And and for a lot of us, um, when we lost power last Tuesday, I think it was more of kind of a minor inconvenience or if you had children, your children didn't go to school, so maybe you had to stay home from work for the day. But for John and his farm, it was absolutely devastating. Um, he has a gas power generator. He was actually in the process of getting uh, county grant funding to buy a 
giant generator that could power the whole farm in the event of power outages, but um, was still working on raising money to install that big generator. So then his smaller generator failed during the power outage, um, and he ended up losing um, thousands of trout. And um, he's actually Hawaii's first uh, commercial rainbow trout aquaponic farmer. And for, for him and his farm, this was just a devastating loss. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because, I mean, the power outage happened, what, um, overnight, right, early in the morning? Yeah, it, it's, I think the first outage was reported around 3 o'clock in the morning. So that's when he actually uses a CPAP machine. So he woke up because he was having trouble breathing and then had to go make sure that all of the fish in his tanks, um, they need uh, oxygen and, and the water in the tank circulated 24-7. So as soon as power is, is lost, starts ticking um, but because of a malfunction it took about an hour and a half to get a generator up and and by that time it was too late for at least about four thousand fish um, which is a really devastating loss for a small farmer here on maui because we all know that farming is a tough business well that's crazy i mean so he was gasping for air the fish were gasping for air uh and i can feel his pain because we had a system that malfunctioned and and we had a, a several hundred dead tilapia but um thousands of fish i mean oh that's that's heartbreaking yeah especially well and then especially when you factor in kind of what folks have had to deal with over the last couple of years so their farm like so many others um had had their revenue drop significantly during COVID when restaurants stopped buying products. He actually, he grows uh, watercress, organically certified watercress, um, using the nutrient-rich water that comes from the trout tanks. So there was COVID, and then we had a giant uh, storm last December that also knocked power out, where he lost fish then and had flooding, and then this happened. So it really, really just... uh, the, the farm really bore the brunt of everything. So um, do we know what caused this? What's Hawaiian Electric telling us? Yeah, so right now uh, they say they're still investigating the cause of the outage. Um, we do know that it's the most widespread that Maui has seen since 2017. And in that case, uh, a lightning storm was the cause of the outage. Um, this time, I think all of us are a little bit more confused because we didn't have any extreme weather. So we're used to... If there's a big windstorm or a hurricane or a tropical storm, um, I mean, you have trees that fall on power lines and stuff like that, but we didn't really have any extreme weather last Tuesday. So I think a lot of folks have a lot of questions that they're waiting for answers to. Well, you know, I know we here on Oahu, you know, we're hearing about all the schools that were shut down because of the power outage. But, you know, when you break it down to the losses um, by these small farmers, uh, small business owners, uh, boy, it's it's pretty devastating. So hopefully he can recover from this. Definitely, definitely. Well, and I spoke with uh, the Chamber of Commerce here on Maui and they said, yeah, this, I mean, devastated some small businesses, but it impacted businesses large and small because, of course, you had employees that needed to be shipped around because they were caring for their children. So, I mean, this this was a, a very, had a very widespread impact here on Maui. Well, um, we just hope it doesn't happen again and they get to the bottom of this. But thank you so much, Marina. Thank you for having me. That was reporter Marina Riker with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read her full story at civilbeat.org.
Oahu ended its relationship with coal today. AES Hawaii's coal-fired plant in Kapolei seized operations at midnight. It was the last facility in the islands to burn coal for fuel. The plant was in operation for three decades, but Hawaii Chief Energy Officer Scott Glenn told a conversation Savannah Harriman Pote that our history with coal goes much farther back, over a century and a half. Hawaii's relationship with coal started almost 150 years ago when the Navy and ships used to use coal to travel across the Pacific Ocean. So Hawaii was an ideal spot to put in a coaling station for ships to refuel in their travels. Over time, that got replaced by oil and bunker fuels, and coal was not needed for the ships. Um, But during that time is when the plantation era started, and we started using coal to supplement energy that that came from burning the byproduct of sugar and pineapple. So in a way, we had bioenergy during the plantation era, and we supplemented it with coal. And so you have a couple of power plants, like on Hawaii Island and on Maui, that you know a long time ago were what we call bagasse. That's the name of that when you burn like the byproduct of agriculture for energy. They were bagasse power plants that had coal, and then as the plantations went away, they switched to being primarily coal. So that's what happened on Hawaii Island. That's what happened on Maui. And then as we realized the economics of coal were not working and the environmental impacts of coal, and and I don't just mean like carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions, but other impacts as well, that it just wasn't a viable source of energy for those islands. And so those coal plants were retired, leaving the one in Kapolei to be the last coal plant. When, When Hawaii committed to the 100% renewable energy pathway in 2015. At the time, we had the coal plant, and I think it represented about, on average, 15 to 20% of the electricity on the island. And in 2016, the decision was made that we are, in fact, going to end the use of the coal plant in 2022. So the coal plant was built to last 30 years, was maintained to last 30 years, And here we are, 30 years later, retiring it. Sometimes it seems that energy projects get the most attention when they are either coming online or going offline. What were the feelings around the coal plant when it was being built in the early 1990s? In 1992, when the coal plant was built, electric bills went up for the coal becoming part of the energy mix. And we've all forgotten about that. Why it went up is because at the time, oil was $20 a barrel and coal was more expensive, but it was important to diversify away from oil. In the late 80s, people were still reacting to the oil embargo crisis in the 70s and looking at ways to diversify away from our dependence on foreign oil. And so we built the coal plant and everyone's electricity bills went up. When I have conversations about the coal plant, oftentimes their first question is, oh, we have a coal plant? Mm -hmm. What awareness do you think people have of, of not just the history of coal in that area, but Kapolei's relationship to energy production? I think outside of Kapolei, most folks on the island aren't aware about how concentrated energy production is there. For the folks in Kapolei and the folks who work in Campo Industrial Park, I think they're keenly aware of how much goes on there. Well, I, I don't want to gloss over the importance of those jobs. These are really high-paying, high-skilled jobs that are in a community that often doesn't have a lot of those kinds of opportunities. So, you know, we're very cognizant of what this means for workers in this industry. 
And I think to AES's credit, they've made a very serious effort at providing um, opportunities for their employees at the coal plant to find other work either within the company, within the industry. And we've also understand that a lot of the companies in that area are really looking out for each other and there's in the sense that some of the employees at the coal plant are taking jobs with some of the other energy production sites in Campbell Industrial Park or in that area. Is there any detriment to the health of the environment or the health of people who live in that region because they are home to so many different industrial plants? Yeah, there, there is. And so that's, that's a really, I think, an important perspective to keep as well. I think often we talk about the price of electricity and greenhouse gas emissions, but coal has other consequences too. In particular, when you burn coal, you're releasing particulate matter into the air, which is like little stuff, you know, little little pieces of stuff going up into the air. Um, hydrogen chloride, hydrogen fluoride, benzene, toluene, dioxins, formaldehyde, lead, arsenic, mercury. All these things are coming out of coal as they get burned. And, you know, the smokestacks have what are called scrubbers to catch most of it, but it doesn't catch all of it. And so there are measurable amounts of these things going into the environment. The trade winds blow some of it away, but the trade winds can only blow away the kind of lighter stuff. The heavier stuff actually falls out of the air and it settles into the ground. It settles into the water. Uh, mercury, for example, will settle into the water and the fish will absorb it. And then the people who eat those fish absorb that mercury. These are also real world effects that people experience. People who live around um, coal plants tend to have a higher incidences of cancer and other health effects. If you just take a look at the, the population characteristics around Kapolei, um, it's the folks, a lot of folks fit the profiles of people who are vulnerable and susceptible to these kinds of environmental harms. You know, older folks, children, pregnant women, um, you know, people with breathing conditions, asthma, things like that, all get aggravated if they're near a coal plant. The coal plant is capable of producing 180 megawatts of energy. And when we discuss renewable projects that are coming online, a lot of that conversation revolves around how much of that wattage they will be able to make up. Aside from just where our power comes from, what other changes are we going to see on the grid as we transition away from fossil fuels? One of the things about this transition, right, is the coal plant is part of this older model of how the power system works, which is you have what's called like this base load power, and it just goes 24-7, all day, all night, the same amount, period. And so when people say, oh, well, why isn't that wind turbine going? You know, it's a windy day. You know, why aren't we using wind power? It's probably because of the coal plant because the coal plant has to burn at a certain amount and it's really expensive and hard on the plant to raise and lower it. it tries, you try to always keep it at the same amount. So by retiring the coal plant, it's actually going to reduce the amount of what we call curtailment, which is not using renewables because there's too much power. And so we wanna move away from these old inflexible power plants. And so in that transition, Hawaiian Electric doesn't want to have any one power plant to be 160 megawatts of the grid. In fact, I think they're predicting 120, maybe 100 megawatts as the maximum from any one source of power. 
because what it does is it gives them flexibility. And so we're moving away from the idea of any one power plant always providing the power to the portfolio always providing the power. What we've seen with Kauai, which is where we want Oahu to be, Kauai is already 100% renewable during the day. It's 70% renewable overall. And they have the highest reliability metrics in the state now for their grid. And they also have the lowest rates. They are where we want the rest of the state to get to. You know, when we talk about this transition and rooftop solar, and rooftop in particular as compared to utility scale, you know, we have more rooftop solar on the grid on a daily basis than we do from any one power plant, more than we get from coal. We already today have more rooftop solar than we get from Kahe Power Plant, Hawaii Power Plant, or the AES Coal Plant. We're already moving pretty far down this pathway. We've been hearing from Hawaii Chief Energy Officer Scott Glenn. He spoke with HPR Savannah Harriman Pote about what's next for Oahu's energy grid as our only coal plant has shut down. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. On view now, cross-pollination, flowers across the collection, explores the emotional, psychological, and spiritual resonance of flowers in art. HonoluluMuseum.org. What makes something cool or not? One culture writer says status is the answer. Rugby shirts are a timeless item. Football jerseys aren't. You know, so these things aren't accidental. They do really map to power and hierarchy and things like that. But we can redefine cool and maybe shake up old power structures along the way. Find out how next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin Monday, September 19th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. If laughter is the best medicine, then Improv Hawaii is probably eligible for a medical license by now. The local improvisational comedy venue is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. It provides a space for comedians, actors, and all kinds of everyday folk to make people laugh through a form of life theater where everything is made up in the moment. It was started on Oahu in 2012 by local actor and self-described Head Filipino, you know, silly Filipino. That's Kimmy Balmilero. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with her in our station this week to reflect on the milestone. Do you have to be funny to do improv? <laughs> Well, you know, at Improv Hawaii, we do say we focus on improv comedy, mm -hmm. but, you know, comedy is subjective. So yeah. what does that mean to be funny? I think the coolest thing about improv is that there are 
really, it's it's hard to have a wrong answer. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of going back to your child-like instincts, right? Trusting your gut of what you think is funny and really pulling from personal experiences, which are always going to be funny because most likely someone can relate to it. So that was a kind of roundabout way to say, not really, just to trust that you are funny. Everyone's funny. Even the people who don't think they're funny, Mm -hmm. they're actually the most hilarious. I wonder if it'd be funny if like a real stodgy kind of curmudgeon guy came in. (laughs) Listen, we've had those. (laughs) Yes, and it's, it's the honesty uh-huh. you know we do have rules and we like to build a, a very supportive community at improv hawaii especially when people are kind of again put on the spot to make things up mm-hmm. i think they get nervous when they try to be funny and we're used to a world where certain comedy that's maybe seen to be hurtful to people mm-hmm. is kind of the norm so we do try to build a supportive space so when those people when they come in and, and they you know share that kind of energy we do try and guide them into like a more you know th- they're still able to share their type of comedy and their comments and 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 such but in a way that's actually supportive yeah. and funny and i think it's eye opening for some people okay i see how i am funny but i also see how i can present my comedy in a way that elevates the community versus just like is lazy comedy mm. almost improv hawaii is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year mm. What was the improv scene like 10 years ago? Wow, it was popping, actually, here in Hawaii. I had just moved home from living in Los Angeles for about seven years. I'd been away for 15 plus years. So when I moved home, or before I had just moved home, I was really involved with UCB in Los Angeles, Upright Citizens Brigade. One of the founders, in case people don't know, was Amy Poehler. And so when I moved home, I was like, you know, I want to keep doing that. But there was already a thriving improv and sketch community here. You know, we had several companies active at that point and there was even an improv festival so my goal actually with improv hawaii was starting it just as a website because what i had found was a lot of people were kind of doing it kind of separately almost like kind of crossing over but not really and there wasn't a, an easy way to find improv here my husband is a web designer or a web developer rather so he helped me build this website that was it was just that it was improv hawaii you could find all improv events mm-hmm. you know and sketch comedy events and that quickly turned into our own show and then our own jams and then you know me bringing out some friends from the mainland from Los Angeles specifically to teach workshops and then it kind of just like became its own thing to what it is today. And how have you seen it change over the years? Is there more comedy offerings now than there were 10 years ago? Well, as far as improv goes, I think that it it is kind of dwindled down, especially during the pandemic. You know what I mean? Like a lot of performance arts companies, especially, it was very hard to push through. Thankfully, we were able to pivot fairly quickly. We had acquired a space, great timing, March 2020. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that right now, I'm, I'm so happy that Improv Hawaii has continued. I think that we are doing a great job at supporting and building this community a little bit more. I wish that there was more going on, but again, it was it was rough during the pandemic, yeah. you know? I think it's changed because more people now more than ever are looking to connect. Mm-hmm. So I think that improv is such a great way for not just performers or actors or comedians to come together. It's just like a, it's a playground, you know? It's a safe space to, to be with new people, to just play and try new things. 
And you say on your website that your mission is to build confidence through comedy. Can you talk a little bit more about how Improv Hawaii develops confidence for its performers? Well, I think that a lot of actors actually don't improvise. Mm -hmm. They're scared to improvise. So I think for performers, it gives folks the, the confidence to explore their characters a little bit more. And I think there are directors and writers out there who enjoy that. They hire actors sometimes for their personal kind of like style, you know, their little like sprinkle, their special sauce, as they say. Mm -hmm. So I think it gives actors the confidence that way. And then also the interesting thing about the Hawaii community versus let's say New York, LA, Chicago, is that we get a lot of non-actors and non-performers and non-comedians that walk into our doors. And again, these are people that are just looking for something new to try. Maybe it scares them and they really just want to try it. Or maybe they're like, you know what? My auntie told me I was funny last week, so I thought I'd try it out, you know? Yeah. So there are different ways that we kind of build that confidence. And whether your goal is to get out there and become a professional improv artist, which is very hard. <laughs> <laughs> or or it is just to, again, like have confidence in, in the world. I think we, we build a great space for that. And kind of flipping it towards the audience now, mm -hmm. how do you think improv and comedy and laughter, how, how do you think it benefits the audiences that come to your shows? Oh, gosh. You know, an improv audience is a very special audience because they're part of the show. Everything's made up right then and there. You know, our signature show is an improvised musical. Mm -hmm. So we make up the lyrics. We have two amazing musicians that, that play piano for us on the spot, Sean Chu and Moku Durant. And they make up the music on the spot, too. Like, we have no idea what's happening. start our musical is we interview a random audience member. And we do have a rule for a warning for anyone that comes to see Improv Hawaii musicals or any Improv Hawaii show. If you try and force your friend to do it, you're actually going to get on stage. That's our rule. If you are the person that's like, hey, you do it, choose them, then it's you. But yeah, an improv audience is part of the show because we need their suggestions. We need their stories. It could be as simple as give us a one word suggestion of anything at all. And someone yells out pineapple. We do an, an entire show based off of that one suggestion. So that's what I love about the improv audience and improv comedy audience is that they're part of it. And I think they really enjoy watching their idea come to life. And we have no idea where we're going. When actors train, usually they do it in hopes of booking a role in a production. When athletes train, they usually do it in hopes of competing at some level. When improv performers train, mm -hmm. what's the end game for them? Well, there are opportunities to become professional or paid improv artist, but that is also a difficult thing. One, because there are very little opportunities for that, for improv specifically. So I think the end goal to me, I mean, why I love it so much, you know, improv is not my bread and butter. 
but I can't stop <laughs> doing it. I love it because it always keeps me on my toes. It's always new. I'm always having to stay present. And I think for anyone in any profession, you always want to be present. We talk about listening. It activates your listening skills. And it also, I think, allows you again to kind of open up that door to freedom again of trusting your gut. The older we get, the more people say, you can't do it like that. You can't do it like that, you know? Or we're, we're constantly being told to make adjustments. And I think improv really helps that. Make a new choice. So you, you come up to an op obstacle. What do you do? You don't crumble under pressure. You just make a new choice. You figure it out. So I think no matter what you do, Improv is just such a fantastic skill, and it's fun. Thanks so much for your time, Kimmy. Oh, thanks for having me. That was Improv Hawaii founder and actor and Filipino Kimmy Bumalero talking with HBR's Russell Subiano. You can catch one of their signature musical improv comedy shows this Saturday, September 3rd. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. My new philosophy Well, that is it for us today. Up tomorrow, it's a Hanaho show featuring some interviews that we've done with people with some really interesting jobs. Give us some feedback. Have any polio stories you'd like to share? We would love to hear from you. Call our Talkback line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can connect with us on Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.